this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Well, hello and how are you? Welcome to another edition of the Jay Allen Show. Well, thank you for all of those who came out and hung out with Todd Conklin and myself on the pre-accident investigation podcast that just occurred over the weekend as we were talking about safety communication. I had a fun time having a conversation with good old Todd Conklin. Anyways, today we're going to have a conversation about a lot of things, but I don't even know where to start because there's so much information to share. But today on the show, I have Dr. Charles Casto. Let me tell you a little bit about his background. He is an organizational consultant with over four decades of business experience, including international and domestic clients. He was awarded as a meritorious executive by President Bush and a distinguished executive by President Obama. So as you can tell, I'm going to definitely feel the pressure on today when I'm actually doing this particular interview. Anyways, let me not waste a lot of your time and let's get this interview started right now on The Jay Allen Show. Tell us a little bit about, well, let's start off with how did you get started into this and then kind of go from there? Well, it, you know, I was kind of born into this into this arena, safety arena. My dad was a oil refinery operator and, uh, and uh, had a lot of challenges there with human performance and, and uh, being in, in as an operator in the control room. He also had a, an electric company on the side. It's, Side gig was an electric company. We rewired homes, so we spent a lot of time with uh, electricity and electrical safety, those kind of things. My mother was a um, a ward clerk in a hospital, so she had a lot of insights on safety and human performance and and the mistakes that they'd made in the hospital. We hate to say that, but they do make mistakes. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if we're supposed to admit that. Yeah, (laughs) and then uh, I just have to learn from them. That's all. Then um, and then I went into the Air Force and I was a EOD, you know, bomb tech kind of guy. So obviously there was a lot of safety focus and explosive ordnance disposal. Left there and went to work in a commercial nuclear industry as a reactor operator and an instructor. Obviously uh, was indoctrinated in all that nuclear safety and and uh, safety for the nuclear plants. And then I went to the regulator and worked for the NRC for uh, 28 years in the regulatory. Retired in 2013, and ever since I've been a, basically a, a consultant or a organizational performance for the last seven years of my company. And well, I, uh, I've I, learned a lot. I find that interesting when people say they retired, but they still then decide to pick up a job. <laughs> I failed retirement. <laughs> so, so let me ask a couple of strange things there, because you went back and you said that he was uh, that your father was actually working at a nuclear power plant? No, he worked at an oil refinery. Oil refinery. And, yeah, right next to a nuclear power plant. So, but then you were at a nuclear power plant. What years are we talking, if you don't mind me asking? I started in commercial nuclear power in 78 and then retired from the regulator in uh, 2013. Okay, so then you, so you were kind of there during the time as what people call safety two or human and organizational performance was being kind of built out. Exactly. In fact, what were you I, thinking about it at the time? Well, you know, there were a lot of there were a lot of challenges with safety, particularly in the '70s and the '80s. A lot of bad behavior. Um, it wasn't checked or 
And and I actually left a, a, a reactor uh, because of that. Uh, I found another job in the industry in another place. Uh, I was not happy with what was going on at that facility and um, said, you know, this is the way this nuclear industry works. I, I don't want to be part of that because of the behaviors that were going on. And uh, so I went to work at another nuclear plant and this was in the late 70s, early 80s. And, and I found the culture, and I hate to use that word, the C word, but the culture <laughs> about the same. And I was like, okay, at this point, after being a bomb tech, you know, I was sort of hypersensitive to safety. And uh, so I said, well, if this is that's the way this industry works, I'm, I'm not staying. And uh, I thought I had the opportunity to go to the regulator. And I said, well, let me, let me try the regulator for a while and see if that's any different. And I found the uh, culture and the regulator much better, much more uh, what I was expecting. So I stayed with them for, for a long time. And, and there was a lot of changes, you know, Three Mile Island in the nuclear industry in, the, in 79. I graduated operator school the day of um, March 29, 1979, the day of Three Mile Island. So, oh, wow. Was, yeah. I was like, what, what, are, what are the odds, right? Right. So, well, I just spent a year and a half in school and now I'm not going to have a job. So that's great. And, uh, but I did and, and went to work in the plants and, you know, just saw you know, how not to do it, basically. So at what point do you decide to go get out and get your doctorate, if you don't mind me asking? That wasn't until, uh, actually, I did my doctorate at the same, I started in 2011 at the same time of Fukushima. So I was at Fukushima in, in Japan. I was dispatched there uh, on March 14th, I think, three days into the accident, got there on the 15th, three days into the accident to lead the effort there for the U.S. government. And uh, at the same time, I had applied for a doctorate in in uh, Kennesaw State University here in, in Marietta, Georgia. And I was accepted, and I was like, well, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Uh, fortunately, the classes didn't start until September. Of course, in March was the accident. So I actually... Uh, missed the first one or two classes they were meeting yeah, I, I don't know if you're supposed to admit to that they might actually go after yeah, State now, you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so to make a long story short i flew back from japan once a month to spend a weekend in class until i came back to the u.s in 2012 and then you know full-time dedicated to, to the doctorate and if you don't mind of course what is it in uh, it's in, well, public administration, or I'm sorry, business administration uh, and crisis leadership is was my dissertation. Management, super, supervision and management is the concentration area. My dissertation is in extreme crisis leadership. And I guess that's a great segue here because extreme crisis leadership is definitely how we started off on how we wanted to do this conversation. That's right. So, so tell us a little bit more about what you currently do, because I'm I'm intrigued by the whole story, of course, because you've seen different aspects throughout your career, even from a young age before you even got into the workforce on some yeah, of the yeah. things that you've seen. So yes. tell me more on how some of the stuff that you've seen and how you apply it when you go in as a consultant. Well, I've seen it for many years, you know, since I was a child, seeing my father um, drag the river bottom for grounding victims and and, uh, you know, and then in the UOD and then in the nuclear plant and then being experienced with the Fukushima event and, and how, how leadership and safety changes when 
the focus is when you, when you recognize your own mortality as a leader. So you're in charge of this event, and suddenly uh, you have what's known as death anxiety that you're that you are facing your own mortality. And how does that change? How does that change how you make decisions? Obviously, you have cognitive narrowing. You know, your your mind uh, narrows down to uh, I need to save myself, and um, so you make decisions based on your own self-preservation and how to fight that. Uh, Fortunately, I'll tell you, an amazing job uh, Izawa in the control room of Fukushima did of overcoming death anxiety and leading his team, who had death anxiety themselves, leading them the, the team through that uh, in an impossible situation, really just you know, unfathomable, where, where you're not going to have success. Uh, you know you're not going to have success. And how do you keep people from quitting on you? And which they did approach him about why are we still here? Let's leave. And, um, you know, leave the control room. And he kept them there. And, uh, when their feet, <laughs> when their feet wanted them to, feet and mind wanted to leave, he needed them to cement their feet and, and stay. So you're worried about your own mortality. And, uh, you know, your leader has to convince you to stay and you have to convince yourself. So those skills and, in doing that, it's just remarkable. I'm just so impressed by those people. And the same thing, there were actually two Fukushimas, Fukushima Daiichi and Fukushima Daini, two different plants. You don't know about Fukushima Daini. Most people don't. It's about eight kilometers south. Underwent the same tsunami uh, at a little bit higher elevation, so the damage wasn't as bad, and they had one emergency power supply remaining. But they had to organize that emergency power system so that it could uh, safely shut down four reactors and it was designed for one reactor. So they had to lay a high voltage cable, nine kilometers of it by hand, um, and a big cable by hand they had to lay in a horrific environment. Uh, talk about safety where, where you know, there's uh, industrial safety is just incredible threats, electricity hazards, uh, uh, drowning hazards, just every kind of hazard you can imagine. And he had to organize those people to lay nine kilometers of cable. So if you look at those two sites, the leadership and safety leadership and, and how they approached it was a little bit different between the two leaders. But both in both cases did an exceptional job of organizing the staff, keeping the staff dedicated to the mission. So how do you think that they're trained, that they're able to do that? Because as you said, it's kind of a fight or flight type of thing where people just want to kind of run off and not thinking of the big picture. So how do these people get trained to be able to talk to their team members to stay there in the foxhole with them? Now that, that's it exactly. Fight or flight is is the, the what, what you're trying to guard against or fight uh, the emotion. Emotional, it's, it's very emotional. Um, and it happens in any, uh, if you look at what happened on the bridge at uh, Deepwater Horizon, it's emotional. So you, so you talk about the training involved in that. Of course, uh, safety culture, and I, I know that there's a lot of debate about nuclear safety culture and, and those things. That, that, you know, that sets the foundation uh, for the environment. In other words, you take Azawa in the control room at Daiichi. One of the methods he used to keep people 
keep people there and keep people focused was he said, look, we've been trained for this. We, we, we know we have procedures and we've been trained. Let's just let our procedures work and let's do what we're trained to do. Let's let our training kick in. And that was one of the strategies that he used was his ability to, to keep people focused on the mission. How did he get trained for that? You know, I think Jay, a lot of it, of course he had training as a supervisor and all that, but a lot of that was he grew up in that area and he knew whatever released, whatever radioactivity released out of this, out of this plant was, was affecting. I mean, I think all operators would think that, but he had a special um, interest in that he grew up outside that plant, right outside the fence. And he knew whatever, whatever happened would affect his neighbors, his friends, his relatives. So he had a lot of motive to, to do the right thing. But I think any operator, and Masuda in the other case, uh, Masuda saw him down at, down at Dine, he didn't grow up there, but he had the same kind of attitude. He wasn't a control room supervisor. He was a ship uh, site uh, vice president. But um, he didn't grow up there, but he had the same kind of motive, the interest in not impacting the public and, and uh, minimizing the amount of damage. So, um, of course, the training is essential. It's necessary, <laughs> you know, but maybe not sufficient. So you have to have some innate, I think, leadership skills and abilities, or at least understanding of them, to lead people in a hazardous environment. So would you say to some extent then that a lot of the people with this particular mentality would probably have a similar mentality to how some people do in the military? I do. Uh, I do. I do think that there, there's a difference. And, and the key difference is that um, in, in, in when we look at crisis leadership, much of the crisis leadership literature and research is done in the military context, because that's where most often you have more, you know, mortality issues. What I found in my research is that the, the, the military motive, mission first, force protection second. So in other words, we're trained in the military. We're trained and we understand that people may perish to achieve the mission. That's why you cohabitate. That's why you all have the same uniform. All those things that you do in the military to make you, you know, one member of, of a bigger force. So we're trained to expect that when you have a we have a facility, whether it's an oil refinery or a nuclear power plant or any high hazard technology, we have a facility like these people come to work in a, with a lunchbox. They're not expecting to put their life on the line for this organization and for this facility any more than anybody else is, really. And uh, what you find in the research is that the two priorities get swapped. So in, the, in this commercial domain, uh, people think about force protection first, mission second. So that, that's the difference uh, between the military and, and commercial domains. So when you go to one of these locations, and let's say, for instance, using the example of being in Japan, when they call you and you already know of the event, because I would imagine that you're tracking all of this stuff. Right. What's your, what's your initial reaction when you get the call? You want to see how, well, how much information do I have? What intelligence do I have about, about the, the event? And what are their actions 
the strategy that they're using, strategy, not just actions, but what is the strategy that they're using to approach the event? I had an event like this, a much smaller scale in Hungary, I was called into on a radioactive release. And it's the same thing. You know, you look, what, how much information do we have and what's our strategy? Because you'll get conflicting information. Some things will be positive, some things will be negative. And, and if you react to every piece of data that you get, you're, you're going to be very disorganized. So the key is to develop a strategy. And you can adjust the strategy, check and adjust as you go. But you need to have a strategy. So you look at what is their strategy? How are they organized? Are they prepared for the next decision? Well, one of the one of the issues that I had and had to share with them in Japan was to position people for in place for a future decision. For instance, I, I may know that I may have to make a certain decision in two days. It's coming up. I can see it coming. So I need to position people to get the right information so that I can make the right decision two days from now. So you have to be, you have, I, I put it as, you, you have to be ahead of the event. And, and um, you know, unfortunately, we've not done that with COVID. We're not ahead of it. We're still chasing it. And, um, we, you know, that's, that's been a real challenge is to get ahead of the event, to get run faster than the event does. And so you, when you go into some organization that's having a crisis, you're trying to see, are they ahead of this issue? Are they getting ahead? Do they know how to get ahead of it? That they don't, they're going. MacArthur, you know, one of Douglas MacArthur's greatest quotes that I just love. He said that uh, all losses in battle or war can be uh, summarized by two words: too late, T O O, too late. And uh, that's what happens. You go in and you say, "Are are they getting ahead of it, or are they too late?" So from the moment you get the phone call to the moment that you put your shoes on the ground, how much time are we talking? Let's take the travel aspect out of it, because this sounds like a lot of prep work that you have to do prior to getting there. Normally, uh, normally on a normal, <laughs> normal circumstances, I understand. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of prep work ahead of time on a normal, you know, a normal event. There's, you know, I'll, you know, I'll put at least as much time as I'm going to spend on the site prepping for it. And uh, so there's a lot of analysis that goes on. A case like Fukushima, I was, you know, and Hungary, the event in Hungary, you know, I was just dropped on the site. If you subtract out travel time, it just dropped on the site. I went from, you know, obscurity here in, in Atlanta to either, you know, uh, Pox Hungary or, or Fukushima, Japan, uh, after an airplane flight. I mean, I guess if you, if you have to kind of put any positive spin on it, at least being that close to Atlanta, you can get onto an international flight relatively easy. That's right. Yeah, and that's one of the, Jay, that's one of the reasons I, I stay here in Atlanta. One of the reasons I stay here in Atlanta is just the, the access to the air, airport and, the, and access to the world. The world's flat. Um, you know, Archimedes, those guys had it right. You know, the world is flat. Uh oh, you, you you know you're gonna steer up some people by saying yeah. that. Yeah, well, it is. It's flat, right? It's uh, we have flattened the world with with travel and communications and the internet. <laughs> the web stream accident in Fukushima was a web stream accident everywhere. 
This is The Jay Allen Show. We all want to make sure that our family is protected in medical emergencies. What many of us don't realize is that health insurance won't always cover the full amount of an emergency medical flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you could get hit with high deductibles and co-pays. That's why an Air MedCare Network membership is so important. As a member... If an emergency arises, you won't see a bill for air medical transport when flown by an AMCN provider. Best of all, a membership covers your entire household for as little as $85 a year. AMCN providers are called upon to transport nearly 100,000 patients a year. This is coverage no family should go without. Now, as a Jay Allen Show listener, you'll get up to a $50 e-gift card with a new membership. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com slash safety and use the offer code safety. And don't forget to tell them that Jay Allen sent you. And we are back on the Jay Allen Show on Safety FM. Dr. Castro, let's talk a little bit more about what exactly you do when you go into organizations because I, I think that the that our listeners will be very curious on some of the stuff that you do and you have a lot of things that you talk about but I think that I want to focus particularly if you don't mind between leadership and our organizational development if you don't mind yeah if we go out of the crisis realm and just talk about leadership and organizational development so most of my work is I'm an independent an analyst, let's just call it, of an organization. So they call me in and say, we, we, we need to know, we want to go to the next level. And typically, I honestly, Jay, I work with high-performing organizations and work on sustainability, what we call staying on top. So that, that's where I typically work, people that are doing really well, and they say, we want to go to the next level. Okay, tell me what you're doing. Tell me, tell me what you're, you know, how you're going to analyze where you're at. And uh, I'll look at their data and I'll go out and I spend a lot of time out in the field watching work, watching behavior and try and then interviewing people up and down the line, you know, frontline workers, first line supervisors, mid-level managers, senior leadership team, executive leadership team and look for alignment. And I, and I kind of do that organically. I, I don't ask. You know, we used to ask the old questions of, you know, what are your focus areas for the site? What are your three focus areas, right? I don't ask that stuff anymore. Now it's just organic. You say, what's on your mind? What makes, you know, what's working really well here? What isn't? And you see if they if they emulate the organizational values, the organizational mission, the the focus areas, do they talk about those things or is that absent? And they just talk about other things, right? And then you watch... Uh, Particularly, I, I spend a lot of time watching first-line supervisor behavior because that's really what makes a difference in the organization is that first-line supervisor. Or do they have the right standards? And if I see first-line supervisors are allowing violations of standards or rationalizing violations or um, not upholding um, all the expectations, then then uh, that's a that's a real challenge. So I also ask, you know, what is your management model? What does your management model look like? What what's your standard? What are your standards and expectations? And then you go out and see, are they really living them? Are they living up to their standards and expectations or not? And, and there's a number of areas you look at: operations, maintenance, and then you look at um, expectations, procedures, all the areas that you might imagine that you look at. But it really comes down to talking with people. 
and observing the work. And I, you know, I, I do it all the time, uh, drop in, and it's amazing how much you can learn, Jay, in a day or two on site and, uh, and how much analysis you can do. But you're, you're right. You have to do a lot of prep work. Well, I would imagine that you get a lot of analysis because sometimes, at least seeing it from a consultant's point of view, you get a lot of information from the people that are there because they're looking at you as an outside source. I, as a friend of mine likes to say, you can't be a prophet in your own land. That's right. So it becomes a little bit easier when someone as yourself comes into the whole equation. Now, I like to ask this particular question because I always find it interesting to hear the perspectives of other people. How do you think that it works in most organization from the C-suite to the line level person when you have middle management that's actually giving those communication pieces? Do you think that there's enough of a focus on middle management or not enough as we speak today? Uh, there's not enough. Uh, the mid-level managers should really set direction and vision. The, the C-street suite does, but, but mid-level managers actually are the ones that make things happen. And they have to ensure that the first-line supervisors are upholding the management model for the organization. I, I, you're right on. I see this almost every time I go out where the mid-level management group is not working as a peer group that they're, you know, I think you've heard this before, right? Uh, you know, you go in and say, you guys are siloed. They say, well, no, we're not siloed. We're cylinders of excellence. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, everybody's a cylinder of excellence, right? I'm a perfect cylinder, uh, stainless steel, I'm smooth, you know, but I'm the, the, the cross-functionality is extremely important especially for the like ops and maintenance and engineering for those key production organizations working cross-functionally is essential to success. And, and if those mid-level managers are not doing that and they're all worried about their own rice bowl, then you got a huge problem. And, or if they're a filter, right? If they're the clay layer, we always look for clay layers. And oftentimes, I, I, you know, oftentimes the clay layer is, higher than you wish. It's the mid-level manager or the uh, senior level manager team. I just, I just had that happen to me recently. It was in an organization and the engineers were, they were raising issues and, and they could tell that their, their, uh, their corrective action documents were getting more and more passionate. And that, that passion, you know, that comes from being frustrated by the leadership team, uh, not listening. So, um, I found that was a mid-level manager and the senior leadership team. They were they were not receptive to the feedback they were getting from frontline workers. What process do you use normally to get the information from the people from the field when you're actually first there? Well, when you're, when you're fir- well, when you're first there, you add to what what information are you using? Well, I, you know, a sad kind of sad story, but good story. Dick Thornburg um, just passed a week or so ago. Dick Thornburg, brother. Uh, Pennsylvania during Three Mile Island accident was a great prosecutor, and uh, he taught me. I, I spent some time with Dick Thornburg. Taught me long ago to to interrogate the facts and interrogate the fact bringer, and um, that's that's what you have to do. So you have to tell you, okay, what do you as a frontline worker? What do you think the facts are on this job? And then and then ask them, where did you get that fact? Where did that come from? And to see if it's anecdotal, to see if it's solid. So you, you really, so you have to first, because oftentimes you find out that what they see as a fact is not a fact. And uh, so you're, so you're looking for that. 
interrogate the fact and interrogate the fact bringer. See, what's the validity of the data that we have in, in the direction that we're going? I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. It does. I mean, because here's the thing. It's always different on how people acquire information. So I wanted to see how exactly you went about doing it. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I just, you know, either either I looked at their work package or I asked them. Typically, I asked, you know, what, what, you know, what is the objective of this job? What are your procedures? What do you know? What are your, what, whatever the parameters are that they're doing for that particular job, pressures, temperatures, whatever it is, where are you getting the information from? So you have to build a mental model, basically, of the job and the task as a, an observer. And uh, and also, some, sometimes if I know the organization is having a challenge in a certain area, I'll target that area. Instead of trying to look at everything, I'll target if they're having behavioral problems in a certain area, like pre-job briefs or whatever it is, then I'll, I'll target that area. Okay. Well, let me ask you this, because I know the kind of backtracking and jumping around on your career for a moment, if you don't mind, of course. Sure. You start your company back in 2013, as we were discussing earlier. Well, you're, you're, let me rephrase that. You go into retirement, because yes. this, this is the retirement thing. Yeah. And then you decide, what, five years later to write a book? Yeah. So what's, what, what, what's the what's the decision behind that at the at the time? So you you say you know I, this is the retired life that I'm wanting to in, right. understand how you're enjoying. You're, you're running a business and you're writing books. I mean, this sounds like a lot more work. It was, and and I, I I'll tell you, I tell people I work harder now than I ever did. When I had <laughs> yeah. And the other thing you learn when you start a company is you know you eat what you kill, and right. uh, so so you know you 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 would definitely my. My experience is you definitely work harder when you're working for yourself than you do when you're working for a company on a salary. And uh, so, it, and also, it took me it took me four or five years to write that book because there's a lot of factors involved in, in writing the story, um, gathering the data, of course, the editing process. Also, I wanted to make sure there were no factual mistakes in the book, so I had to have the Japanese. Uh, read the book and, and give comments on it. That took about a year right there was the language barrier, the technical issues, all of that uh, to get the fact check. You know, I, I, obviously I kept my own opinions in there, but I, I wanted them to review the facts. So that, that delayed it a year. Uh, plus I had to finish my doctor. I was doing the doctor research. I didn't finish that until 2014. Oh, so you're trying to see how many things you can do in, <laughs> in a certain amount of time. It sounds like. And I also was taking a leadership. Uh, we have a we have a chamber of commerce has a leadership uh, program. You know where you go once a month to see things and do things. I forget leadership cob. I think it's called. And mm-hmm. that's a year long program. So I was doing that at the same time. So, wow. Oh, okay. So yeah. so you have to tell me the secret because there has to be a secret on how you're pulling off your lifestyle at that point. Yeah. I always I always ask I always ask is there a 25th hour that people are yeah. not sharing with the rest of us? Yeah, you're right. That, that's why I say that's what they make nights and weekends for. <laughs> no, 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 no. Believe me, I under I understand the pain of the nights and weekends thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I I always find it funny that there's people that I have reached out to in the past and like there's certain days over the weekend they're like untouchable like you ask them can we meet up on sunday afternoon right what like how dare you well you know me as a sort of a crisis response guy i have to answer the phone 24 7 absolutely and you know somebody will have a problem at a plant uh you know and they'll have questions ask questions particularly on leadership issues 
um, you know, responding to employee concerns, whatever it is. So uh, I don't have spam calls on my phone. I have to answer everything that comes in. It, it has to definitely make it interesting, especially during this time of, of your life when you're doing all of this stuff. So right now, as you're moving forward, of course, we're in 2020. How much has, or excuse me, we're in 2021 now. How much has business changed for you in regards of what you were doing? Of course, you were doing some some things in person, but now this is, let's just say what it is. It's a, it's a new world. It's really a new digital world. So how are things looking for you now? It's interesting, Jay. It's it's really working. Uh, there are I still have clients that they they want you to come on site, and I do. Um, they're, so they're not holding back. It, you know, it's interesting to see the difference between the clients that some want you physical presence, and some say, "No way, you know, you're not coming in. You're going to do remote. We'll do this remotely." Which actually I have found. Um, I mean, I love being out in the field and actually talking with people. You lose something, but. Uh, the remote interviews of workers are actually working <laughs> amazingly enough. It does. It, you can make it work. It, it does work. I worry though, with the people that, that wait too long, I heard somebody on your show talk about uh, oversight and leadership, not being on the job. And that's, that's a real problem. I, you have, I admire my clients that, that don't want to stop with the oversight and leadership on the jobs. They, you know, I admire that that's, you know, they still hold that value. And I think for some that are waiting too long, there's, there's some point where you need to bring some oversight back into the job, physical oversight. I understand if there's a, some period of time where we're trying to control this thing, COVID. Uh, but I have a lot of, I have, actually, I've got a client that, that, that had 400 remote workers in engineering. And uh, they're bringing them back because, they're, they're, they're getting, uh, COVID rates are much higher with the people that are remote than they are people at the plant, right? So, because they're doing other things besides just working. So, they're, the potential for them to get COVID is, is lower at, at the factory. It's always amazing, you know, that, that when you start taking a look around of everything that's going on. It's always amazing when, when you hear things like this, because I take a look at this and I go... There's so many different aspects that we can look at and not look at, and it just depends on who the person that's kind of leading the whole group. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, a- absolutely. I agree that the the you know the courage of the senior leader um, is essential. Then them to say, hey, look, and look at it from a like you know the courage that it takes to bring those people back, and knowing the liabilities and knowing the challenges with that, but. When they look at it, they say this is the right thing to do. We're gonna get, we're gonna have fewer cases of COVID by bringing them back. Now, when you get more people on site, you know the possibility is that the numbers will go up. But most, it's funny because, you know, when you work on a site, no matter what industry you're in, you use safety behaviors. Right. And do you keep do you keep that vigilant at home that you do at work? I would probably say no for most people. And that's what's happening. And and so that's why they say, look, we can bring it, we'll bring them back in here and they'll go back in. They'll see the safety behaviors. They'll see how we have addressed COVID. We still have to have operations and maintenance on our sites. And uh, so that, that means that 60% of the workforce is here and we have to manage that and keep from having a major COVID outbreak. So, um, and I think the industries that are, are, very sensitive to safety or used to that. This is just another 
how do, I don't know what, what would be the best way to put it. This is just another element of, of safety, COVID, right? Hygiene, those kind of things, just another element of safety that you have to add in. Um, but people are used to wearing PPE. People are used to pre-job briefs. People are used to uh, you know, critiques after work, uh, those kind of things. So this is another element that you have to put in. But we, so we, we have these processes built into our organizations. This is just another one. Oh, absolutely. Now, let me ask the, the of course, the, the strange question as you have lived through this through COVID in 2020. Now we're at the beginning of 2021. What do you see happen next? And of course, that's my fortune teller question that I have to ask everyone. But because you get to interact with so many different leaders, so many different companies, what do you think is going to occur next based on, I guess, what you're seeing? You know, people, people often say the new normal. It's not a new normal. You're right, Jay. It's the next normal. So it's not new; it'll be next, and um, so that's what we'll see. I, I think, I think the remote work will will stay, obviously, to some to some degree, um, and and uh, be with us for quite because it's been proven effective, right? It's been proven effective; it'll stay for for some reason. But there 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 are some jobs that just have to be done on site, and the, those will be done. Um, I, I just think we our readiness for the next event. Well, we really the, the the new the thing that we really need to focus on is how do we remember what I said when we started this conversation about too late. So we need to look at the lessons learned from this event and institute countermeasures for the next event, and that'll be the more important thing. We'll work out the work relationships and who's who's work remote worker, who's not a remote worker and all that'll work out and, and it'll get done. The key thing is, uh, will we be fighting the last war again or will, will we prepare for the next one? And then that's hope. What I hope that we don't, we often do this, you know, we, we learn these lessons and then next thing you know, we've forgotten them. And uh, so I just hope that the new, the new, the next normal will include resilience strengthening our organization's readiness uh, for whatever it is. It may not be COVID. It could be something else. The preparation is, uh, is essential and learning the lesson from this and, and applying it broadly. Okay. What else could happen to us? This is COVID. Let's not necessarily fight this one again. Let's fight the next war. I don't know if that makes any sense. I don't know. I'm not a- no, 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 I think you're on something, but it also kind of leads me to another question, of course. As you look at this, then, what do you think of people that say that this is something that is just made up by the media? And I know it's kind of a weird question, but hey, we're kind of in that weird, ter- we're in that weird territory already. Yeah, well, that, that, they, that people say, okay, it's not real. It's something that the media has hyped up or they try to give percentages compared to the flu compared to what COVID was. And I know this is going into a totally different direction, but I just want to understand your thoughts. Well, a couple of things, I guess. First, first of all, I, I, honestly, I just think that's silly. It's, I mean, you look at the deaths and I've had extent, not, not family members, but people I know die from this thing and many people die. You look at the numbers. I, you know, I think it doesn't do any good to pretend it's not there or pretend it's not real. Um, Again, you know, otherwise you're not going to learn the lesson. If you if you blame it on the media, then you're you're not going to learn the lesson. If you if you think learning lessons is important, you got to figure out what the right le- you know where the lesson comes from. I mean, that's the Fukushima question with regard to was it a natural event or is it a man made event? 
if you if you say it's a natural event, you're going to fix the wrong thing. You know, and so COVID's the same thing. If you if you think this is a, a fallacy or is is fake, then you're you're not going to fix it. You're not going to fix the the right things. And you know, it just seems silly to me that you wouldn't learn the lessons from wouldn't learn the lessons from. And we're you know we're just not good at it. We you know what the federal exercise was in 2019, um, 20, the 2019 federal exercise, national emergency exercise, was called uh, Crimson Contagion. It was uh, the federal, all federal government responds and learns lessons about how to deal with a contagion. And the very next year we have a contagion. And guess what? We're not very prepared for it, right? So it's just it's just amazing on how sometimes those things work. Yeah. And so if you you know if you blame it on the wrong thing, if you say well it's not real or if the media caused it or whatever, okay, fine, but it's going to be worse the next time. And you know you've got to find the right root cause and the right causes and and fix those. I I don't, I don't know how to argue against the you know it's a media. <laughs> Oh no, no! I mean, and there's no argument to be had. I just wanted to to, to get your point of view on it. No, I, of I, you know, I think it's very much real, and uh, you know, the key is to learn learn the lessons of. You know, we're struggling now with the vaccine rollout. Uh, you know, our strategy there flawed, and uh, so we've got to learn those lessons. I mean, I, I think that, of course, because nothing even close to this has occurred since 1919, it's very difficult to know what to do. Sure. Well, we, we studied it. We have academics that have studied it. We had exercises on it, you know, and, and uh, you know, the, right. And, and the first thing to go in war is the plan, right? We had a plan, mm-hmm. but that's the first thing that gets tossed out the window is the plan. I, I always think of the quote, and I know it's a terrible thing to to reference, but Something that Mike Tyson said several years ago. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. (laughs) (laughs) I chuckle as I say that, of course. Yeah, Churchill said a lot about that too, right? (laughs) I know, but it would sound too pretty if I did it. So I didn't want to say it that way. No, and I understand that. I understand that. But let's let's learn our lessons and and be ready for whatever whatever comes out uh, the next time. Absolutely. Now, let me ask you, if people want to know more information about you and what you're doing, where can they find out more? Uh, website's castogroup.com. Uh, everything's there. And uh, I'm at chuckcasto1 at gmail.com or 678-595-6600. I get people get me a lot. so. Well, I truly do appreciate you coming on to the show today. Well, I enjoyed it, Jay, and I, you're doing great work and, and uh, hope it added something. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Jay Allen Show as much as I did. If you want to come out and hang out with us and see some of the other things that we're doing, you're more than welcome to. You can come to safetyfm.com or you can go to safetyfmplus.com. Anyways, next week, we'll actually have our Hop 101 class, what we're calling Hop Reconfigured, available at safetyfm.io. This class will be on January the 20th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Hope to see you there. You've been listening to The Jay Allen Show exclusively on Safety FM. Safety FM is the home of real safety talk. Thank you for always being the best part of Safety FM, and that is the listener. We'll see you with another episode of The Jay Allen Show before too long. Goodbye for now.
Want more of the Jay Allen Show? Go to safetyfm.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.